Two and a Half Admins, episode 92. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, a couple of plugs. The first one, your blog post plug, Alan, evaluating FreeBSD current for production use. Yeah, so this article is basically about how you use FreeBSD current and make sure your production workload is going to work on it so that you can report bugs early and make sure that by the time the release comes out, everything will be smooth for you and how to perform benchmarks on current by turning off some of the debug features and how big of a difference that actually makes. All right, and a plug for BSD Can 2022, which is very soon. Yeah, so it's online this year, sadly, uh, but that will be live June 1st through 4th. So that's only a week from when we're recording this, so by the time you hear it, it'll be pretty soon. So check that out. Well, links in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. The EU is declaring war upon end-to-end encryption, specifically in private messages, and they want companies to be able to scan them for CSAM material and also grooming of children. So basically it boils down to what someone think of the children. This is not a new idea. This has been proposed many times by many governments. This is just the latest of the attacks on end-to-end encryption. It's quite amusing the way they worded it. They're like, yeah, we're fine with end-to-end encryption, but you have to have a way to do this. And it's like, well, that's the opposite of end-to-end encryption. The the point of end-to-end encryption is that nobody in the middle can listen to the messages. And it's only really end-to-end if the key sets are the two end users, not somebody in the middle. Now, a lot of the apps kind of gloss over that a little bit. Like the WhatsApp app is what's got your key. You don't control it yourself. And so maybe they can do something on the client side or something. But mostly as the privacy advocates in uh, even the technical people in the EU point out, the government's basically asking, you know, do the impossible, but you get to decide how you do the impossible. Yeah. As far as the EU wanting big tech, quote unquote, to scan all the messages, um, I guess this is the episode where I piss off all the libertarians because I kind of don't really mind it that much. I don't want end-to-end encryption to be outlawed as a thing that people can do. But as far as like, you know, if you're a Google or a Facebook or an Apple, I don't necessarily think it's the worst thing to say, okay, look, if you want all the ease and convenience and you can be as much of an idiot as you want and still send these messages, then yes, this is one of the things you're going to have to put up with. You're going to have to put up with us doing the bare minimum to try to make sure that you're not going to murder people or rape children, both of which are things that happen and are facilitated using secure encrypted messaging. I don't think it's so onerous to expect somebody who focuses on their privacy that heavily to do some of the technical setup and the self-education themselves, maybe host a little infrastructure. I mean, again, this is the era of even without going into the weird, you know, low rent hosts, you can spin up a VM for five bucks and host your thing. At that point, if you want to do whatever you want, fine. I don't think it's that onerous to require from a, a technical and like a personal investment standpoint. I also don't think it's that unreasonable to expect that like if you are going through all this extra trouble to make absolutely certain nobody can do anything to see what you're talking about, that that itself should maybe draw a little bit of a circle around you in red and be like, all right, well, if you start having really big problems around this person, maybe look at this. Yeah, I just, I just think if we get to something where it's being monitored, it's no longer end-to-end encrypted. And the disconnect seems to be the EU saying, we're fine with end-to-end encryption as long as you can monitor it. And it's like, well, then it's not end-to-end encryption. Like, we can build a thing that means it's not completely end-to-end, but 
then it's not end-to-end encrypted. There's some wiggle room with the definition of what the ends are, right? Like, technically, we think of end-to-end encryption as the ends being the two users. But in, say, the WhatsApp case, the end is the two apps. So it arrives in the app on your phone encrypted, but then it's not encrypted anymore, and the app can decide to do something with it, whether that's when you hit the report button or when they scan the message and decide that it should be reported even though you don't want it to be. I think there's also, there's some interesting wrangling to be done here around the boundaries between public infrastructure and private citizens. And I think that what people refer to as big tech with the scary capitals, it's kind of in an odd place in the middle. It's kind of like you can drive whatever speed you want to on your own property, on your own private road. But once you leave your property and hit public infrastructure, you know, now you have to follow a more restrictive set of rules. I feel like that's kind of the angle that we're aiming at here, but it's not that clear cut because obviously, you know, Google, Facebook, et al. are not part of any governmental organization. You don't vote them into existence. But at the same time, they facilitate so much of this traffic and it has such a huge impact on society that, again, I don't think regulation of it is the worst thing. I'm repeating myself, but I still think it makes sense to say if you want that much super duper secret squirrel privacy, you need to put some work in yourself and do it for yourself. Part of the reason why people wanted the end-to-end encryption is because they didn't trust Google and Facebook and so on not to be reading all the messages and not like literally eavesdropping so much, but feeding them into machine learning algorithms and so on. And, you know, when it's app-to-app encrypted rather than end-to-end or whatever, there's nothing stopping them from from still doing that. And if Google is is training their model or doing whatever to make money off of your messages, then they damn well can also be checking them for things that shouldn't be happening. Although now I'll play devil's advocate to my own position. The other somewhat reasonable position I think that you can take there is to note that law enforcement agencies, by and large, aren't that worried. Now, for for public consumption, for political purposes, yes, they'll scream to the heavens. But operationally, they don't really seem to be that impeded by the encryption of message content because what always remains unencrypted is who the hell you're talking to to begin with. And the way modern law enforcement investigation typically works is not starting out actually listening to your phone conversations. It's pulling the records to see who have you been in contact with. Just knowing that you talk to Joe Blow at three o'clock in the morning on X night, which is also the night that they know that this thing happened and that thing happened. They build this web of communication and find your place in it. And if that looks interesting enough, then it starts to be subpoena time. Now, obviously, if everything was completely end-to-end encrypted the whole time, what the Sabina can't do is can't retrieve the content of those older messages. But let's face it, the folks that this kind of legislation would really impact, their OPSEC's not that freaking great to begin with. You know, you're almost certainly going to be able to find other ways into their stuff. And conversely, the people who really nail the OPSEC side of it, I don't think any of these laws are going to impact them at all because they're going to do exactly what I said to begin with. They're going to take the privacy and the the security of what they're doing, licitly or illicitly, into their own hands. And so the law's not going to matter much. Yeah. And, you know, same thing, like you said, about the the metadata there is, you know, if all the people you're talking to are underage, maybe that points to you not doing what you should be doing. But it's interesting here because you see that the proposed law and it's requiring companies to do this without saying how. 
But at the same time, if the law dictated how, that would probably be worse. Yeah. So I don't know <laughs> which way to, to fall on that particular part of it. I don't know how many legislators from any countries the world over mm-hmm. we can really pick on to be like, you know, this is the person that we want to architect our secure end-to-end encrypted protocol. <laughs> yes, or our... Insecure, not exactly end-to-end encrypted protocol. Either way, maybe not so much protocol architects you're finding in the halls of Congress or whatever your local governing body might happen to be. As we've said before, with security, it's always a, like a sliding scale of trade-off. And I think the point of this is that we slide a bit more towards the ease of use and the public good or whatever of trading a little bit of the the extra security for stopping a bunch of things that shouldn't be happening over the messaging apps. And yeah, if you want to go slider all the way to the, the right, then you're going to have to use something other than, you know, the big messaging apps from big tech. Alan, you and I will just share our pub keys and we'll SCP text messages on each other's servers. Problem solved. The messaging app I use, Threema, is basically GPG with a slightly better user interface where you scan each other's QR codes instead of having a key signing party. It just always sounds too much like key party in my head, man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Go to K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A to sign up today. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Collide helps deal with some of the many issues that are not solved by locking down devices, like instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices, free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash 25A. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. It looks very much like Broadcom is going to buy VMware this week. We're recording a little bit early, but it's probably going to happen on Thursday by the looks of things as you hear this. I was a little surprised at first, um, but I, you know, had kind of forgot that Broadcom had bought Symantec and Computer Associates and a bunch of other things in the past and has been trying to build out their software and software as a services portfolio. Still weird to me, and especially remembering that Broadcom isn't really the same Broadcom anymore. It had that weird reverse merger with Avago, and it's just a giant behemoth now. But it's also kind of interesting looking at the history of VMware from like being a company and then getting acquired by EMC and then merging with Dell and then splitting and then getting spin off from Dell but only like a year or two ago. So that's interesting. And then uh, the other interesting part is it looks like the purchase price actually comes up of $60 billion, comes up about $4 billion short of what VMware's theoretical value was when it was spun out of Dell in November of 2021. So not long ago at all. But, you know, with the stock market the way it is, I can understand where $4 billion kind of disappeared recently. Always a big difference between valuations and liquidity. Yeah. And, you know, this news has shot VMware's stock up by about 25%. Yeah, it it seems strange at first blush, you know, Broadcom buying VMware. Why? But then you remember, you know, oh, yeah, it's 
2022 and normal people struggle to put food on the table where giant companies do huge stock buybacks and then try to buy other companies so they can become as gigantic as they possibly can. Yay. Yeah. Although the slightly amusing part is, you know, when VMware spun off from Dell last year, you know, they said they would enjoy increased freedom to execute its multi-cloud strategy and uh, simplified capital structure and governance model and more operational and financial flexibility. But if they get acquired by Broadcom, it seems like most of those advantages would go away. Yes, but money. It's somewhat interesting in that VMware's kind of been subsumed by big companies a couple of times now, but always managed to somewhat stay separate and eventually get spun off again. Maybe they just taste bad. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't like that one. My first thought was Broadcom doesn't really make hardware for the virtualization space. So it just doesn't seem like a good fit somehow. Well, VMware is working on a bunch of ARM virtualization stuff, and Broadcom is big in that space. But, you know, up until VMware got bought by Dell, it wasn't ever really about bundling with the hardware, and I don't think it is now. Broadcom is buying VMware as a software company, not as, uh, you know, something they're going to bundle with hardware to make an appliance or something like that. I think mostly they're just after more recurring subscription-type revenue, which VMware licensing is licensed to print money. It's not as good as Windows licensing, but no. what is? Speculation here that Broadcom would try to integrate it with uh, their version of 5G or with their SmartNix, which might actually be kind of interesting, or especially if that's something a bit more like a DPU, a data processing unit, and seeing the virtualization, like the VM actually runs on the PCIe card that's talking to storage directly over the PCIe bus and not necessarily interfacing with the host as much. We've already seen ZFS running on a DPU, so what the heck? Why not a whole VM? Yeah. I don't know what the use cases for that might be, but... It might actually be kind of neat to, to just be like, yeah, yeah, I'm running a little short on uh, CPU on this on this host. Ah, no problem. We got some free PCI Express slots. Just uh, plug in a couple new CPUs and we'll alleviate the bottleneck. Or what might actually be really interesting there is an ARM-based server that has a lot more PCIe lanes, but then you're putting DPUs that are actually running big x86 chips to run all the VMs or something weird like that. <laughs> We're back to my favorite parody uh, video card ad from the late 90s. The one that took like all the chipsets of the day, you know, back when there was mm-hmm. there was more variety. There's like the Voodoo 3D and uh, 3DFX and, you know, all those. And somebody photoshopped everything onto like a three foot long <laughs> video card. And they're like, you know, it's crazy jimmied up booyah base of all five chipsets shouldn't work, but it totally does. I swear I saw something on YouTube recently where somebody tried to build something like that. Somebody tries to build something like that every day. But I think it was like a, just like a Voodoo 1, 2, and 3 all on one card somehow or something. I mean, I built a RAID array out of floppy disks one time, so who am I to judge? Yeah. (laughs) So a sysadmin in China got seven years in prison for wiping databases. Yeah, so uh, Han Bing, a DBA for a Chinese real estate brokerage company, he got annoyed because he wanted to start a security project and his company passed on it. And he warned them about gaps in their security coverage and they ignored it. And his solution was to just log on and delete everything and they couldn't do anything about it because they didn't have any security protocols in place to prevent it, which – Okay, fine, your point is proven, I guess, but were you really not expecting some jail time for doing that? I mean, not only did you log into your employer's server and destroy a whole bunch of data, like, it was a brokerage firm. Like, yeah, dude, you're going to jail. 
So this is obviously a very rogue action, but even as rogue actions go, it's really bad. Like, I mean, I've known some sysadmins who have done things like get really annoyed about a lack of backups specifically. I've been one of those, but you know, the response there, if, if you've got an employer or a client who absolutely refuses to deal with a completely mission critical issue, like having no backups whatsoever, eventually you fire them or quit. And I've absolutely done that, but that's, the extent of what you really can ethically do. I have known some sysadmins who took it a step further and they would do things like privately back up the data and then delete it in prod. And then when everybody panics, be like, well, I backed it up, but this is what would happen if I hadn't personally backed it up to this thing, you know, outside yada, yada, yada. You're already breaking some ethical boundaries even when you do that much. This guy literally deleted everything, gone, shredded, no getting it back. I think seven years in prison. I mean, as much as I say he should have seen that coming, I I think it's kind of ridiculous to have him in prison for a similar amount of time as you might get for cold-bloodedly murdering somebody. It seems a little excessive. But at the same time, like, yeah, your career should definitely be over. If you use your position as a system administrator for a company to just completely screw over that company to fit a peak, you don't need to have that career. Yeah, it's definitely not the right thing to do. It seems he did have a bit of a point about how badly they would be able to cope with it. Apparently, employees went without salaries for some extended period of time because they didn't even know who worked for them anymore. Which, again, just makes it even worse. Like, you're not only dicking over your employer, like, dude, you're dicking over your co-workers. I was quite surprised that he used RM and Shred for a database. That doesn't seem like the way to do it properly well it depends on speed like you know manually deleting rows or just trying to drop the table is not going to be very fast and might be more recoverable from binary logs or whatever whereas if you just rm all the files then it's uh pretty bad oh shred is probably not gonna help so much if you really want to destroy it you'll use something like dban or something and actually overwrite the entire disk not just logically overwrite it with shred I have better ideas than any of those, but I'm going to use my position as one of the hosts of this podcast to not speculate on the best way to sabotage your company's databases. (laughs) Definitely don't do that. I've seen some great accidental ones, though, like the SQL update query to fix somebody's address, but hit enter before you put the where part and updated every customer's address to the one new address. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If anybody on this podcast has not gravely screwed something up by dropping the where clause. I think it would be Joe just because he hasn't spent enough time on the command line of a, a SQL server. But I would bet that Alan's right there with me and we'd both have to raise our hands in that shameful meeting. <laughs> yep. Delete all from blah wet and yet yeah, nope, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it didn't happen. And you know, back then there weren't snapshots with ZFS. <laughs> no, there were not. Oh, the joys of having to go from tape you know, when it went the last night before and catalog the tape first, you know, maybe be about two, maybe three hours in before you're sure there was even anything there to pull back at all, much less get it actually up and running and serving queries again. Good times. Yeah, I I told a story on uh, the BSN Now podcast a couple of weeks back about the time somebody had tried to use a Red Hat rootkit on one of my BSD machines. And so it didn't work. But it left a bunch of files with weird symlinks. Like there was a, a file with a weird name, bunch of special characters in it that was a symlink to slash. Mm-hmm. And when trying to RM it, I was having trouble typing out this file name. So I used the tab complete. 
But because it was a symlink, and I hit tab a second time or whatever, it put the slash on the end to then try to, uh. you know, do the, uh, and yeah. So when I press enter, it didn't arm the symlink. It tried to arm slash. And, you know, out of habit, I put the dash RF, even though I was only removing one file and I really shouldn't have. Oh, no, Bad you habit have. to just always do dash RF when you're RMing something, right? And then it's like, this is taking too long. That's weird. <laughs> and then not deleting slash spin slash init because it's, you know, it has a CH flag that's immutable. And I'm like, oh, shit, control C, control C, LS, command not found. Uh oh. <laughs> I remember back in my FreeBSD days, uh, accidentally deleting, I think it was SBIN in its entirety off of a production server. And obviously the server wasn't really usable, but it was still running at that point. And I ended up, I actually, um, th- this was quite a while back and my options were pretty limited by modern standards. What I ended up doing was actually installing FreeBSD onto another just completely useless, you know, machine that was lying around doing nothing solely so that I could rsync its SBIN <laughs> with the dash A argument from the, you know, BS machine that I just installed it on onto the production machine to keep it running without ever having any downtime and having to, you know, tell anybody like, oh, yeah, it deleted SBIN off your server. That's about what happened with mine. I was using Bacula then, and the Bacula file daemon was still running. Mm. So I just started a restore job and restored the missing files nice. without rebooting. And it was a machine that had like 100 users, and some of them were like, a couple of them were logging in and trying to use it and finding it weird. But they came back later, and it worked fine, and they had no idea what had happened. I felt kind of shameful, like not only about having accidentally deleted SBIN, but about the whole, like, just the brute force and massive ignorance of installing FreeBSD rather than trying to figure out how to just extract the files directly. But I was like, right now, everything's working enough. Nobody's noticed. And I can get this done faster than I can figure out how to do it the better way. So because, yeah, like you could just go to the the FGP site and have got like base.tar, the GZ or whatever, and got those files back for the right version. But whatever way is, is working right now is the best way. Well, I, you know, I just, I knew for a fact if I had the SBIN off of a fully installed FreeBSD machine, R-syncing that in would work fine. And whereas there were just, there were more variables than I wanted to deal with, with trying to get the uh, the actual binaries out of, I think it was TGZ files and yep. be absolutely certain I got, you know, the right ones for the right place and the right permissions on everything. I was like, I don't really know that intimately what all the steps the FreeBSD installer is doing. So we just going to do this the way that I know it'll work. For sure. Because, yeah, the, the base.txz will work, but if you try to extract it to slash, it's going to overwrite etc with a bunch of defaults and probably get rid of some files you'd rather it didn't. Ooh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and so trying to get the right tar command to exclude that when it contains absolute paths, it can get pretty hairy. So, yeah, the rsync way <laughs> was the least dangerous way to, to attack that. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A 
Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to find out more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Ellen or any feedback or anything really, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. So Kyle writes, I've been looking to back up my photo memories that I've taken over the past 15-ish years and keep new photos backed up. I'm not opposed to paying a yearly price, but I want it to be encrypted. So far, the best solution I've read about is Cryptomator and paying for Google Drive or Dropbox. What are your strategies for backing up memories, and do you suggest anything in particular? This actually might not be applicable to Kyle because it's a mobile app, not desktop. But uh, Kyle's question immediately triggered memory of an article that I wrote for Ars Technica a while back about an app called Stingle. Stingle is a free and open source mobile application that backs up your photos And uh, just like what Kyle is asking for, it encrypts everything and the cloud side of it never has the key. Only you have the key. So on the surface of it, it sounds like exactly what Kyle is looking for. The only question is whether a mobile app is going to work or whether he needs something on the desktop. But again, just not sure whether it's going to work. And it's largely going to depend on what he wants his ingest mechanism to look like from when he takes the photos most likely on a phone, if he's like 99.9% of everybody today and, you know, where he stores them locally. But that's certainly what I would recommend. You know, if if you don't like that, then I think you're going to be looking more for just a general purpose encrypted backup solution and maybe not necessarily something that's directly photo focused. Yeah, I would think the, the biggest thing here is the best backups are the ones you actually take. And so having an app like this on the phone that backs up the photos shortly after you take them, like next time you have Wi-Fi or whatever, is going to give you much better coverage. Now, he's mostly looking at the archive, but something like Stingle does seem like the right choice just because you're just going to add all your new photos before you can accidentally lose them, like when you lose your phone or something, before they get to your archive. And then, you know, dealing with getting the the archived stuff into an app like that is more of a one-time task. And it's going to take care of the bigger problem, which is how do I make sure all my new photos always go into this? So even if it's a bit of a hassle to deal with the older ones, it might be a better solution than something that's more just general encrypted backup. Because if you only dump your phone once a quarter or something, then there's a lot of photos you're risking losing. The company has a roadmap that includes publishing its application for uh, you know further operating systems as time goes by. But right now, it's Android only. Uh, they say that they have uh, a coming soon iOS application coming to Apple's App Store. Uh, I don't know if the holdup there is the development process or just getting Apple to be willing to put it on the App Store, which can be difficult. But for right now, it's an Android only thing. If we were over on Late Night Linux, it should make Phelan happy because he could just install it with F-Droid and everything would be free and open source and, and all good. But right now, if you're not an Android user, you pretty much need not apply. Unless, of course, you are enough of a developer that you want to look at the source code for it and you, know, you want to write your own application, be it a web app or a you know, local client on your Linux or Windows or Mac PC or whatever. If you want to do that, you absolutely can because everything front and back end is free and open sourced and well documented. Is there a self-hosted option for Stingle? Last I looked, there was not. Right. With that said, 
Our friend and colleague Alex Kretschmar also wrote an article for Ars Technica about photo management and his focused on self-hosted options. Uh, he lists several, including uh, Nextcloud Photos, Photonics, Libre Photos, Photo Structure, Shoretto, Lychee, uh, Photo Prism, and a whole bunch more in honorable mentions. Now, as far as you know, the cloud aspect of it and the encryption. Well, that's pretty much going to be a roll your own for most of these. But if you want to spin up a machine at um, Linode or wherever and, you know, do your own full disk encryption with a key that you need to use to unlock the VM, I think that probably is going to satisfy the privacy issue that Kyle has and he can pick his poison for the hosting. Yeah, you could just put it on a machine at a friend's house, potentially. You can absolutely do that. I feel like that's getting a to a little bit of a lateral pivot at that point. You're not necessarily solving the same problem. At that point, if you say, oh, well, I have a friend to trust with whatever. Well, again, it's just a question of do you need it specifically to be about photos or do you just want to run an R-Sync job to a box that sits in your you know friend's closet and has a full disk encrypted drive? Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address to send your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.